no one was looking for it, no one was praying for it, it just God just did it. But but it happened when people began to face up to the reality of their sin. That's a scary one. <laughs> um, I think it's nice to talk about revival with healings and miracles and everything else, but when it comes back to the fact that God confronts us in our evil and our wickedness and our sin, that's a frightening thing, but that's part of what it means to be truly revived. Well, hello and welcome to the Great Southland Revival podcast series. Um, my name is Kurt Marlberg and at the Canberra Declaration, we are talking about revival for the next couple of months. We're interviewing some of Australia's authorities, great authorities and Christian leaders on the topic of revival. And we're doing this uh, in the hopes that eventually we'll be writing a book and releasing that later this year on the theme of revival in Australia. Today, I've got with me Dr. Barry Chant who is an academic, a Pentecostal pastor, and an author. Um, he's got quite a biography under his name. Um, he's actually the co-founder of Table College, which is my alma mater. Um, now, Barry has founded and edited a magazine. He's hosted a talkback radio show. He's organized conventions. Um, he's been on too many boards and steering committees for me to list. Um, and he's written some 36 books uh, I've counted, though there may be more I'm not aware of, um, some of which are Heart of Fire, um, which is the history of Pentecostalism in Australia and another one that I've just been reading in recent weeks called This Is Revival, uh, both fantastic books which I encourage people to read. Um, so I want to first of all say thank you so much, Barry, for joining us today. Thank you, Kurt. A pleasure. Fantastic. Well, I thought I'd ask, uh, first of all, a question. With all the things that you have done through the years, uh, what are you up to these days? What am I up to? <laughs> Old age. <laughs> um, but no, um, I'm, I'm still pretty busy. I do a lot of local preaching, or well, not just local, interstate and uh, well, not so much overseas these days. Um, I still do some writing. Uh, lately, I've been making, uh, doing quite a bit of video teaching. Um, have some time for recreation. I've become a croquet fan, seeing I had to give up tennis, <laughs> so I couldn't keep that going. And, uh, yeah, I read a lot. Very nice. And uh, I'm happily married. And we have three children, 12, great, Fantastic. 12 grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. So. Amazing. You sound as busy as you've ever been, to be honest. Uh, not quite. <laughs> Different now is I can choose what I do, whereas uh, previously I've had a lot of things I've had to do because it was my responsibility, even though I didn't particularly want to. So it's, it's easier now. Very nice. That's awesome to hear. Well, I, th I thought in terms of the topic of revival, because that's what we're here to talk about today, I thought I'd start in a pretty logical place, which is to ask, what is revival? How would you define revival? Um, it's interesting, revival is a word that's actually not used in the Bible. It doesn't occur uh, in most translations. And the word, frankly, just means new life. And I, I think that We've, we've, we've glamorized the word revival a bit. We've, we've tried to make it something more than it, or different from what it is presented in Scripture. Because basically the New Testament has a lot to say about new life in Christ. And that's, it's everywhere. Romans 6 talking about being raised in newness of life through baptism. And then um, there's um, Ephesians and Colossians and Galatians. They're all, all concentrating over, on, on again on the fact that we are new people in Christ. And uh, 
to me, I understand that's what revival really is. It's, it's just it's the new life that we have in Jesus. And um, a church in revival is a church that's living in that new life. Um, I also owe something of that understanding, I think, to the late Leo Harris, uh, who's been dead for some years now, but who pioneered really a whole concept of revival by planting local churches and just preaching the positive message of who we are in Christ. Um, also people like Jeffrey Bingham, whom you may have heard of, uh, also dead, but uh, wrote a lot about the new creation in, in Christ. And so uh, I'm in that sort of general uh, school of thought, I guess. But also I think I'd want to draw a distinction between um, revival or new life and divine visitation. And I, th and I, I don't know that this is going to catch on. I think revival is so well entrenched in its current meaning these days that we've stuck with that. Um, but I personally would like to draw a distinction between the fact that everybody should be living, every Christian should be living in revival all the time because we're living in the new life in Christ. And that to me is this fundamental revival and it's not a... Um, whereas a lot of people have the idea of revival is sort of like an intense, um, uh, unusual thing that happens, uh, but yet doesn't last very long usually. I think a better name for that is visitation, which is a biblical term. Uh, it comes in the Old Testament quite frequently in terms of judgment. Like in the Ten Commandments, God, God says, uh, you know, those uh, who disobey the command to honour him will, uh, do it, will uh, judgment will be visited on them for the third and fourth generation. Um, but in the, it's also used more about divine visitation with God's favour. Um, so uh, you've got many Old Testament stories like Hannah is visited by God and so she's able to give birth to Samuel and then... Um, uh, the prophets talk about God visiting the nation with a renewed prosperity. And of course, the greatest visitation of all in Scripture is, is Jesus. That in Jesus, God visited the earth. And so um, all those things were kind of exceptional, unusual, which is what a visitation is. Uh, when you go visiting, you, you don't stay too long. <laughs> if you do, you're not very popular. Um, and, uh, and the visitation usually brings change. So people come and visit you, you've got to rearrange the bedrooms, rearrange the eating arrangements and everything. Because it's unusual, but special and it's usually very good. Sometimes involves reconciliation, um, usually involves favour. People come and visit, they bring gifts with them. And I, I, I see what we normally call revival, I see more of divine visitation. And there's certainly a need for that in, in our country. Jeffrey Bingham used to say revival is the bread and butter things, like prayer, reading the Bible, witnessing, loving one another, forgiving one another, just the basic fundamental things. Uh, whereas visitation is just where God comes and does something unusual and something special in the church. That's a long answer to a short question. No, that's great. That's a fantastic distinction to make. And certainly something that struck me in your book, This Is Revival, is uh, just how, yeah, basically just how you unpack that revival is New Testament Christianity lived out. Uh, I thought that message came through loud and clear, and as you've explained this morning as well. Brilliant. Can I ask how your passion for revival began? Well, it began when I met Jesus. <laughs> and that was when I was just a kid, just a 10-year-old. But I understood the gospel. I believed it. I decided to follow Jesus. And ever since then, I've had a deep desire to please him. Um, haven't always succeeded but that's been the desire of my heart to do I remember being particularly challenged uh, 
as a kid in, with John 8, 29, where Jesus said, I always do the things that please the Father. And I thought, golly, how do you do that? <laughs> always. But it's been my aim, I suppose. And, uh, and I've just wanted to live, live this new life in Christ. And from the very beginning, I understood that following Christ meant uh, being different from the world. Mm-hmm. It meant things had to be pleasing to him. Um, but still, I was only a boy, you know, didn't rob any banks or anything, but still I did plenty of selfish and, and uh, mischievous things. But then in, uh, that was in uh, when I was 10, when I was 14, which is 1952, which is a long time ago, um, then I was baptised in the Holy Spirit, and that really set my heart on fire. And uh, it made a big difference. Uh, even though I was trying to follow Jesus now, I felt I was empowered to do so. Uh, I had a greater joy. Uh, the, my prayer life was transformed. had a great love for the Word. Uh, I remember as a 16, 17-year-old uh, getting up in the early morning and uh, you've been in South Australia and it can be pretty cold in wintertime. And in our house in those days, we had no heating system. And uh, I get up in the morning in my bedroom, 6 o'clock, winter's morning, dark, put an overcoat on and a scarf and a beanie and sit there. But reading the Word, reading the Scriptures, often on my knees, I just had this great mm. desire to, to know more about Jesus. I read everything I could get my hands on. And I just mm. wanted to please Him. And I guess that was uh, those early teenage years when I had no family responsibilities or anything, just a kid growing up. And I, I just just wanted I just wanted to serve the Lord and I wanted to love Jesus. Didn't always succeed, as I said, but certainly um, had some success and uh, certainly had a growing and developing love for Christ. Mm. That's amazing. That's so great. Really encouraging to hear. Well, I might change the word revival to visitation based on what you've explained <laughs> earlier for the next question, but what's the most remarkable visitation event that you've witnessed? One that I've witnessed personally. Uh, getting filled with the Holy Spirit <laughs> myself. Uh, that, that was my, <laughs> my personal revival. That was my personal revival where I, I just, you know, I was just visited by the Spirit of God. So only 14 year old. Mm-hmm. But, um, that, that, I've never recovered from that. that. That just changed my life. And look, I'm, I'm 83 now, so I've been around for a few years. And uh, there's been ups and downs during that time. And um, times when I've in the ministry times and I seriously considered giving up because of the difficulties and hardships but it always came back to this one thing God visited my life and I was struck by the wonder mm. of that I am just a human being with a frail human body and is prone to sin and prone to failure and everything but God put his Holy Spirit in me and he visited me he touched me mm. and um, mm-hmm. so whenever I, whenever I was struck by doubt or by discouragement I would usually come back to that but how can I give up how can I turn away? I know God is real. I know he touched my life. I know mm. he put my spirit within me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't turn away from that. And uh, that's really been my personal revival. But to answer your question in a different way, I think um, probably in two ways. I mentioned before Leo Harris. Um, for those, those who are watching who may not know about him, Leo was the founder of the Christian Revival Churches in uh, Australia uh, in 1945. Um, he was a stately man of God and man with the great presence of God upon his life but I found in my early years uh, in my late teens 20s just um, uh, going to the church in Sturt Street in Adelaide where he was a leader um, two things stand out in my memory among many one is that you'd be sitting in a church in the church there on a Sunday night or Sunday afternoon 
and things would be going along just you know, well, but, uh, but good. And then he would get up on the platform, and as soon as he stood on the platform, something happened. There was a kind of a, um, I think they call it the X factor in the world, but there's a kind of a factor about him that, that he only had to stand up there. Uh, talking to him in the corridor was different. Talking in the foyer was different. I used to play tennis with him. But once he got on the platform, something happened to that man. And he just spoke with divine authority. It was just uncanny. And the other thing was, I remember, and uh, I've, I actually started work on writing Leo's life story, and I never got never got around to doing it. But in interviewing for that, I'd talk to people, and they would say, we would go to the Sturt Street for the meetings, and we'd be half a mile away. We'd be a mile away, and we'd feel the presence of God before we even got there. Uh, there was just a sense of God's divine mm. presence in those meetings. And and I agree. I, I had the same mm. experience. And you'd walk in the door and there'd just be something there. And then Leah would get on the platform and it'd go up another notch again. And uh, there were many miracles that happened. Um, people were healed quite dramatically of you know, things like blindness and cancer, other really serious things, uh, including myself. I was uh, recovered from a paralyzed shoulder. I had an accident. Uh, things like that happen every Sunday. People would come to Christ. In fact, I remember at one point, one Sunday, where uh, they gave the invitation for people to follow Jesus, and nobody went forward. <laughs> the church almost was struck with grief, the fact that there hadn't been a convert that night. Wow! Uh, it was just an amazing thing, and I started a lot of local churches elsewhere. That was one one example, and, and I, that was just a time of visitation. Uh, uh, the Sturt Street Church is still going; it's a nice church, but it doesn't have that visitation quality we had then. The other one would be uh, mm. with Tabor College. Um, I don't know how much you know, Kurt, but uh, most people now won't remember, but in the, the 1980s, Tabor ran a series of conventions in Adelaide. We only started as a college in 1979. In 1980, we ran a, what we called a summer school, about 80 people. Mm. And then um, by 1986, we were calling that a convention. In 1986, we ran a convention in the... Uh, pavilion at the Wavell Showgrounds, where the we had to put out over ten thousand chairs to accommodate the people who came. We had wow. thousands of people there, and um, again, same sort of thing. I remember one night where um, we, we we used to empty the auditorium, so we took tidy it up, and the choir could practice, and orchestra could practice, and so on. And, yeah, and um, mm -hmm. it was, I mean, it's great. We had, we had a few, 150 voices in the choir. We had a full orchestra, not not a band, but an orchestra with cellos and proper orchestral drums and grand piano wow. and everything. Um, but I remember one night where uh, we had people waiting outside to get in, and when we opened the doors, they ran in. They literally ran in to get front seats. And so much so that a couple of people got knocked over. <laughs> and so the next night we had to sort of say, uh, please, senior citizens, you come first. Mums with babies, you come next. <laughs> and then everybody else, please walk. <laughs> but you know, I've never seen that. You know, I've never seen people running to get into a into a meeting like that. Um, and I say probably the third visitation I've, I've, I've seen out of many I could talk about took place in Sydney mm. on the, um, when would it be, 1980s. And I was... Um, at the time right in yeah in the 90, early 1990s mid 1990s and i was invited to speak mm -hmm. to a group of young people at wesley international congregation and wesley mission and we would they wanted to hear about the holy spirit and we had and when i finished speaking about 100 young people high school kids and god just poured his spirit out on that group and again it was a an amazing wow. meeting because one by one young people began to be touched by the spirit 
Um, but it was interesting because I, the, the, uh, when I finished talking, the, the band wanted to get up and sing some songs, and I told them not to. And if you know anything about church life, you know that bands don't like being told they can't sing and play. Um, but I asked them just to sit down because they, they wanted them, and I said, let's just pray. And we were in an upstairs room, and so I, I said, look, we're in an upper room, just like the day of Pentecost. Let's just believe God's going to pour his spirit out here. So no singing, we're just going to pray. So I prayed, and nothing happened. It was just total silence. And I thought, oh, boy, perhaps we need to sing after all. But then one by one, uh, things started to happen. And uh, a lot of tears. The kids began to cry. Um, you know, a couple of two or three other girls who are leaders in the group, they came out and said, please pray for us. We need the Holy Spirit. And so I prayed for them. And they just... Um, they didn't drop to the floor, but they fell to their knees. And uh, yeah, God's Spirit touched them. They'll be able to weep and then to pray and then to laugh and then to speak in tongues, then to pray and then to weep and then to laugh again. And and, and then that was repeated elsewhere. One young man was just uh, so was weeping, tears, his nose was running. And uh, I remember he's now the senior pastor of the church. Uh, there's uh, another, another young boy who said to his dad, who was one of the leaders, he said, uh, his dad said to him rather, he said, um, David, why aren't you praying? And David said, I don't know how to pray. He says, well, pray anyway, his dad said. And he opened his mouth and he started <laughs> praising God in new, new tongues. And, for, and uh, two hours later, wow. he's still there praying. And uh, you know, his dad said to him after, I thought you said you didn't know how to pray. <laughs> and we had, I think, about uh, 35 of those young people had an experience in the Holy Spirit. And I've never seen this before either. Uh, the room we were meeting in was a room with a parquetry floor. And the senior pastor's wife, because I was just visiting at that stage, um, she was walking around with a tissue box and she was wiping up puddles of tears off the floor of this meeting place from these kids. And that was a 9.30 meeting that finished at 2 o'clock. Uh, so, so there's just a few examples in my life of, of seeing a visitation from God. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing those. And I do feel like there's a lot of Australians perhaps that haven't either seen that firsthand, Australian Christians who haven't seen that firsthand, mm -hmm or who are under the impression that Australia has never seen visitation events or widespread revival. What would you say to that idea that Australia has never seen revival or you know, visitation or awakening in that sense? Well, first of all, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, feel too bad about it because um, I don't know any countries that has whole nations have actually experienced a, a really nationwide revival. Um, a couple of countries have got close to it. I suppose you could say the early church did in a sense, but... You know, like even in the days of Wesley in England, um, sure, there was a Wesley revival, but there's a, England as a country was still a secular country. If you read some of the, the fiction writing from those years, you know, the novelists are quite scornful about the Methodists. They, they treat them like people treat Pentecostals today as radicals. So, um, so I think we should understand that a whole nationwide revival is something that is, is rare. But there have been outpourings, outpourings of the Spirit, times of visitation. I just mentioned two um, out of a number. And there's a guy named Robert Evans, by the way, you may know of, who's, uh, I think you do, who's written about this. And uh, he's documented dozens of, of visitations over the years. But two stand out. One is in 1875 in Moonter in South Australia, which is a town, I don't know, 100 kilometres north of Adelaide, maybe a bit more. And... Um, it was a strong Methodist town, eventually originally pioneered by Cornish miners. And um, you can, if you go there today, you still see a Cornish Methodist church there. See 1,200 people, a massive church in this, tiny, this small country town, big enough for the whole population to go to church. But um, 
1875, on one Sunday morning, there was a funeral service. Uh, forget the name of the minister, but the girl's name was Catherine Morecambe. And uh, she had died, and, and they did her funeral as part of the Sunday morning service. And uh, 15 young people gave their lives to Christ in that service that morning. And then that night, wow. um, the thing was repeated. More people came to Jesus. And then they began to hold extra meetings. And, and eventually the whole community was touched. The whole town was touched. And um, uh, all denomination churches were touched by it. Hundreds of people came to Christ just in a little country town. Uh, the other one that I mentioned is um, also not being well documented, but took place uh, 25 years later, or a bit more, 1902. In both New South Wales and Victoria, uh, there was a, a decision by churches to set up what they called the simultaneous mission. And in New South Wales, they had a, <clears throat> the figures are not well documented, but it seems like about a dozen tents in which um, uh, they had. Uh, kerosene lanterns, there's no portable electric lighting in those days, pedal organs and no twanging guitars and thumping drums, thank goodness, sorry, uh, <laughs> just a pedal organ and uh, kerosene lanterns. And, um, uh, but they went all around the country and they also used to hire, used to, you know, community halls and recobite halls and things like that. They didn't want to do it in church because they didn't want to make it, they wanted to be, to use venues that people could feel comfortable coming to. And over 12 months in, uh, throughout New South Wales, something like 25,000 people recorded decisions were to follow Christ. Now, they probably didn't all do it, but even so, 25,000 responses is a pretty good level of response in, in Australia. Mm. And in Victoria, amazing. had similar responses. The, Victoria had an American preacher as well who came in and he had very successful uh, large evangelistic meetings. But one interesting part of that, that mission it took place in, in um, near Wollongong in a place called Mount Kembla, which was a mining community. And so many of the miners were converted there that strange things happened. Um, the hotels, for example, got upset because they were losing too much business. You know, they, they were, they were, <laughs> the profits had gone because so many of the guys stopped drinking, seriously. Um, the uh, police officer found himself with nothing to do. There were no, no more drunks to lock up at night. They were crying went right down. Um, the ponies in the pits that used to tug the little you know, trolley you know, carts up and down with the coal in them, um, they didn't know what to do anymore because uh, they didn't, didn't understand the miners' instructions because the miners stopped swearing at them and they didn't understand the new language that was <laughs> swearing. Um, amazing. And those things all happened there in, in Mount Kembla. Now, the interesting thing is that the Welsh revival is very well known in history. It's been very well documented. Mm -hmm. And those things happened in the Welsh revival as well. But the interesting thing is that the revival in Wales was began in probably 1904, which is two years later, 1904 and 1905. And in fact, this pouring, this visitation in Wollongong, in Mount Kembla, was actually two years prior to that. And most Australians have wow. never heard of this. And most Australian Christians mm -hmm. have all heard about the Welsh revival, don't know the same thing actually happened here. It wasn't nationwide, but it certainly made a big impact. And the mine owner, Ebenezer Vickery, uh, he, he later donated land to the Wesley Mission in, in Sydney and the beautiful Wesley Mission property right in Pitt Street today, magnificent multi-million dollar complex. That, that's the result of that, that, that revival. Uh, it came out of that. So, yeah, it's, there's obviously plenty of room for visitations galore in our land at the moment. We could do it a lot. But mm. the fact that we never had any, it just is not historically true. 
And I could go on a quote to, mm. if I can remember the statistics, but the, the Methodist Church, for example, in, from 1861 to 1871, uh, grew by about, uh, oh, grew from 10,000 to 40,000, something like that, in, in, in growth just wow. in 10 years. It was in Victoria. It's incredible. So there, there was astonishing church growth in the latter parts of the 19th century as well. So we, mm. we've, you know, we've had a good bit. You know, people often often make a comparison between America and Australia. They say, well, America was founded by pilgrims and Australia was founded by convicts. But in actual fact, if you compare the two, there, are, there was a significant Christian presence from the beginning in Australia. Uh, <laughs> and it was a convict settlement everywhere except South Australia, but uh, which was settled by free Protestants. But elsewhere, um, there were there were still Christians, and I think look back at the history of the two nations, we have this terrible problem in America at the moment of, of, of shootings all over the place, because America still has, has this culture of war. You know, they they were founded in civil war against the, in sorry in the War of Independence against England in the 1770s, and then later in the next century the Civil War, and they've got a gun culture there which is embedded in them. We don't have that in Australia. We're a very peaceful society. We have had, uh, sadly, some changes occurring in recent years. But even so, Australia still is very much founded on a Christian understanding, Christian mentality, and uh, there's certainly been a strong uh, sense of God's presence over the years. That's absolutely true. I, I 100% agree with you. But as you mentioned, there is a lot happening in Australian society. It's there. There are trends taking place all across the Western world, and we're seeing it certainly here in Australia where a lot of our, I guess, our society has started to really depart from God. And uh, yeah, we've, I guess our Christian foundation is, is being lost quite rapidly. On the basis of that, or in response to it, what would you say Australia's prospects are for revival or visit, widespread visitation today? And if I can just qualify the question a bit more, when some of these big visitation events have taken place, uh, including the ones that you've shared, you know, in Moonter and Sydney and Melbourne, and also the you know the Wesleyan revival and some of the the great awakening that took place in America that was taking place in a very Christian society, much more Christian than we have today. So do you think that means today it's less likely we're going to see that? Or I, I guess again to ask that question, what are Australia's prospects for revival today based on where we're at? Well, Kurt, um, it's a fair question, but I think uh, God can do the impossible. And well, like we've seen that in the United States at the moment, who would have thought even a year ago that there'd be such a major uh, reaction against the widespread abortion freedom in America? And now we're just seeing mm, all over this country uh, you know, changes there that you never would have been dreamed possible a couple of decades ago. Mm, um, I was uh, in thinking about this, uh, talking with you today, I was thinking of Paul's words in Romans 5 where he says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And that's... Uh, mm. I, uh, encouraging, I think, because the fact is that um, light shines brightest in the dark when it's darkest, and uh, maybe the, the uh, darkness and and uh, even wickedness that surrounds us, uh, maybe it's a great time for a visitation from God. So I'm not at all discouraged in that sense. God's in control. He is the Almighty God, He's the everlasting Father. He's the Prince of Peace, and so we don't lose faith in those things, no matter what's happening around us. Now it's a worrying time, and uh, one is, looks with dismay at some of the trends happening in our country. Uh, the resort to the, the absence of fair debate, the fact that the people don't know how to disagree anymore. If you disagree, you, they assume you've got 
anger towards them or you hate them or something and the language words changed uh, words have changed their meaning there's a lot of and so many things happening it's it's a time of tremendous change and turmoil the last election has seen that where the issues in the last election have turned out to be very different than what some people thought they would be and so and we all got taken a bit by surprise i think yet on the other hand i look at some of the street protests and things like that they're going on and a lot of those people i mean some of them are doing violent things which is not excusable there's no earthly reason why you should burn somebody's shop just because you're holding a street procession or destroy somebody's car. I mean, that's just nonsensical and evil. Mm. But mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, a lot of those people in the streets really think they're doing something good. You know, they're, they're in their hearts, they, they think what their cause they're standing for is a necessary cause. And I think we have to allow for that too, that while the expression of it causes dismay and alarm, that nevertheless, um, the motivation may be more praiseworthy than we think. So I think that gives cause for hope, because so, when people are feeling like that, maybe they're going to respond in a more positive way to the gospel as well. But it's a challenging time, especially for young people now, kids who don't go, who've never been to Sunday school, um, um, you know, young people who don't know anything, have never opened a Bible in their lives. And then in one sense, that's, that's good in one sense, because it means they're wide open to a message that they've never had corrupted or distorted. They don't know anything about it. So here's a great chance to, mm. to say it as it is. But it's a serious challenge and we can't just treat it lightly. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot to ponder there, a lot to think about. Um, but I agree with you. I think when, uh, I guess, a, a common saying is when the sky is black, the stars shine brighter. So, you know, in the midst mm, of a, yeah. a time in our history where there is a lot of, um, I guess, lack when it comes to Christian belief and Christian understanding, the, the light of the gospel can shine even more brightly. So that is very encouraging. Mm. Uh, to finish up, I'd love to ask just one final question in the same train of thought, which is, what can Christians do today to foster revival? There, there are, um, it's a good question. Uh, I'll be quick, quick as I can. I want to say three things, I think. Um, uh, number one is um, there are various theories, as you know from my book on revival, about why it happens. And, and one of the surprising things is that, although it is commonly said that um, X plus one prayer means X plus one revival, it's not always as clear cut as that because uh, I know of historically many people that have prayed and prayed and prayed and they haven't seen a visitation. You get other times when the visitation comes and when nobody's been praying. It just happens because out of God's sovereign uh, cause. And so you know, it's, it's, it's a bit hard to define what must be done in order to produce it. Um, but um, secondly, I think uh, one thing is going to be essential at some point, and that is repentance. So whether God moves us to repent or our repentance moves God, that's arguable, I guess. I think it's the former. Uh, so uh, unless we're willing to face up to the fact of our need, then it's going to be difficult because even if God does visit us, we're not going to accept the visitation as as you know, happens, happened in Jesus' day. Many of people being visited by God himself still didn't accept it. And, and on that point, my little story, I um, was in East Borneo a few years back and I happened by quite accidentally or maybe providentially to meet a young man named Simon Bellan. And um, he, uh, he actually, has, he's written a book, it's, it's a book, it's called uh, The Barrio Revival around back the front of my picture. Mm. Um, um, but um, he, he tells the story of a revival that took place in a little place called Barrio in um, 
and what was it, 18, 19, 19, 1971 or thereabouts. Um, he was um, at that time a worker with the Interschool Christian Fellowship. And it was his job to supervise a group of uh, young men in the high school in, in Barrio, which is in the mountains of uh, Borneo. Uh, and uh, they, 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 these boys used to go out, you know, teenagers, to go out into the villages on the weekend and they would teach Sunday school. And there were about 12 boys, they had about six Sunday schools. And Solomon's job was to help them prepare their lessons on a Wednesday or a Thursday, so they go on the weekend. But uh, he went to, a, had a meeting one Thursday with these boys in a school classroom in a state school. And uh, just after hours, he was a teacher at the school. And he um, did what I just did, hesitated, didn't speak. And then he said, look, he said, I have to tell you boys, he said, I, 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 I can't continue to be your supervisor. He said, I'm afraid I'm, I'm living a double life. My life is not good. And uh, he said, I, I'm a hypocrite. He said, I'm, I, what I tell you and what I do are two different things. And it turned out later that he was drinking, he was partying, but also he confessed that there was bitterness in his life, there was um, uh, anger in his yeah. life. He said he had no love for reading the Bible. It really, his whole life was just was facade, really. And so he said, so, I said I'm sorry, yeah. I said, I, I can't continue. So um, you'll have to find somebody else to, to lead you and, and help you. And then he mm. just sat there in absolute silence. The boys all sat there stunned and shocked. And then um, one of the other, one of the boys in the group, a 15 year old, he started to pray. And uh, he began to confess his own sin. And he started off praying very softly, but the more he prayed, the louder he got. And then another boy, the same, another, and one by one, these boys all started to confess their sins, uh, sometimes in unnecessary detail, and, and just praying and, uh, and asking God to forgive them. And uh, so much so that the, they began to cry out to God. They were weeping. They were just you know, bawling their eyes out, as we'd say. And other kids in the playgrounds outside came to hear what all the fuss was about. Some of the teachers came from elsewhere to, to, to look into the window. And uh, even out in the playground, <laughs> kids began to get uh, convicted of their sin. Um, and this then spread. They, um, the kids went out to the, the boys went out to the villages on the Sunday, and. Uh, People in the villages began to weep and repent of their sin, and it spread through the whole area for some time. Wow. Uh, miracles happened. Uh, I mean, all sorts of miracles. Even people saw visions in the sky and claimed to have seen visions of Jesus in the sky. Uh, one group of young people got lost in the jungle one night coming back from the school, and they prayed and they saw a light showing the path they had to take, and they followed the path and got home safely. All sorts of you know, exciting, wow. wonderful, weird things <laughs> in, the, in this village. And um, mm. I am. Um, uh, in, in, when I was pastoring in Sydney, one of the guys in our church um, came from that area and he, he had been a school inspector in those in the Borneo. And um, and I actually went to Borneo with him and we were touring around. Everywhere I went, people knew him because he'd been a school inspector. And in, in when they were all kids in the school, he was the guy who came around to make sure things were right. They all greeted him by name. Uh, and uh, But he said to me, he said, I can tell you, he said, in the, in the education department, so whenever they wanted to appoint teachers or to appoint uh, even office workers, they always looked for somebody from Barrio because they knew they could trust them. Because they knew they would tell the truth and they would not steal and they would do the right thing because they all had been touched by God. And now that was just a sovereign outpouring of God's spirit and uh, they, no one was looking for it, no one was praying for it, it just, God just did it. But, but it happened when people began to face up to the reality of their sin. And, um, 
that's a scary one. <laughs> um, I think it's nice to talk about <laughs> revival with healings and miracles and everything else, but when it comes back to the fact that God confronts us in our evil and our wickedness and our sin, that's a frightening thing, but that's part of what it means to be truly revived. Mm. So what do we do to answer your question? How can Very we prepare? True. Well, I think just do what Christians ought to do. Pray, read the Bible, love one another, mm-hmm. forgive one another, um, help one another, um, avoid sin, uh, put pride to death, um, don't give in to sensual pleasures that we don't need to, and just just live the life, in other words. Because that, that's to me, to go back to what we said mm. before, I think that's actually revival, is living the new life in Christ. So we need to be filled with the Spirit, mm. we need to be uh, faithful in prayer and Bible reading, but not in the sense that if I pray more, then God will send more revival, but in the sense that this is what I should do anyway. This is what God calls me mm-hmm. to do. And I think if, every, if Christians everywhere began to be fair dinkum, there's a good Australian term for you, mm-hmm. uh, fair dinkum about our faith, mm-hmm. and we got, we're really excited about Jesus, and really excited about what the gospel is, and we are really willing to be filled with the Spirit and to follow Jesus wherever he leads us, uh, that's got to make a difference. Absolutely. I love one of the things that have cha- that has challenged me, Barry, about from reading your books and, and speaking to you today is that revival seems a lot more approachable and possible than I previously had thought because of the way you put it, that essentially to, to foster revival is to just live out the New Testament faith, to, to live out the basics of Christianity. Um, so that that's super encouraging. I want to thank you so much for joining me this morning, Barry. Um, it's been a fantastic time. Uh, your answers, your wisdom um, has been very much appreciated. Um, are there any final things you'd like to share about Revival or about uh, just to encourage the Canberra Declaration community and any people who are listening? I, I, th- I don't know if I mean, I, I just did a series last year, a series of 12 videos of the Book of Revelation for Redeemer Baptist Church in Sydney. That, that was a, I speak at their annual conference and I was supposed to be there, but because of COVID, we did it by video. But in preparing that, I, I had to do it really well and I had to work hard. But there's a verse in chapter 14, verse 4, which talking about God's people, the, you know, the true church says, uh, simply, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And there's a lot of mysterious stuff in Revelation, but that one's pretty straightforward. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I just want to mm-hmm. say that, you know, let's just follow Jesus. It's, and it's not, not follow the Lion, although we have to do that too, but it's follow the Lamb. In other words, mm-hmm. a pathway of suffering, a pathway mm-hmm. of hardship perhaps. Sometimes a mountaintop, sometimes in the valley, sometimes a wide ocean, sometimes a narrow mm-hmm. creek, sometimes dark, sometimes light, sometimes hard, sometimes easy. But just keep going. Just follow mm-hmm. the Lamb. Just follow the Lamb. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that I've been, we've all been challenged about, I think, recently is, is uh, the importance of finishing well. Not just starting well, but finishing well. Mm. So just following the Lamb and keeping on following, just keeping on going, regardless of what the circumstances, what the situation is, we just just keep following Jesus. And if enough people do that, then um, look whether or not it makes a difference to the world is not the point. The point is that we do that, then we're doing what God wants us to do. Christ suffered for us, leaving mm. us an example that we should follow in his steps, says Peter, chapter 2, verse 21. Mm. And uh, that's what it comes down mm. to, really. So follow the land. Brilliant. Fantastic last words. Yeah, that's awesome. I happen to have been one of the mottos of the Moravians too. So that's perhaps mm. for another time, but very encouraging. Mm. Thank you again, Barry. Really appreciate your time this morning. And thank you to everyone who has listened. We'll catch you next time.